NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In post-9-11 America, fears of bioterrorists armed with the most lethal pathogens on the planet sends U.S. spending on biodefense laboratories soaring. Proponents say the labs are vital for national defense, and the work they're doing with anthrax, Ebola, and plague is safe. The history says that the risks to the community and to the environment have been and theoretically are negligible. But some residents in communities where the laboratories will be built say it makes their neighborhoods targets for terrorists. I wonder what the statistics were that both the Twin Towers were going to be taken out. Who would have thought the odds? They were probably astronomical. Accidents happen. Biodefense, homeland security, and insecurity at home this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. The GOP is the party of President Teddy Roosevelt, who gave us national parks and forests, and Richard Nixon, who gave us the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. From the Ford administration, we got the Safe Drinking Water Act. George W. Bush, our current president, is also a Republican, and for a behind-the-scenes view of his environmental record, we turn to someone who had a place at the cabinet table. From 2001 to mid-2003, Christy Todd Whitman was the administrator of the EPA. The two-term governor of New Jersey has written a book about her tenure at the EPA and about the political party she loves. It's called It's My Party Too, The Battle for the Heart of the GOP and the Future of America. Governor Whitman joins me. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Good to talk to you. You know, in reading your book, um, it sounds miserable being the head of the EPA. <laughs> I think it is under any administration. It's a, it's a tough job. I mean, it's a great agency with good people. But when you're a regulatory agency, nobody much wants to see you because you're t- telling people they either have to change their behavior or spend a lot of money for benefits they may never see. So it's, uh, it's always a bit problematic. Well, well, characterize the Bush administration's, you know, policies and behaviors during your tenure in terms of the environment. Well, it's a lot better, actually, than people believe. But because of the focus that had been so um, so specific since the very beginning on the four million evangelicals who had not voted in 2000, the political shop headed by Karl Rove, who, by the way, has done a brilliant job in doing what he had to do, and that's what his job was to deliver for the president – focused on those four million. So everything that we did and every the way we delivered the message of what was happening was delivered with that base in mind. So the good things that the administration did, like cleaning up the Hudson River, a watershed-based management approach to cleaning up our waters, the the regulation on diesel engines, non-road diesel engines, which are the backhoes and the tractors that even the NRDCs at one point said it was as probably the most significant thing for human health since we took lead out of gasoline, those things weren't talked about because the base doesn't like regulation because that means government is coming in and telling you what to do and they don't like government overseeing your life in certain ways. They seem to like it in other ways, but uh, not when it comes to the environment. And so uh, the good things weren't talked about and the things that were a bit more problematic were given a lot of play. Do you have a specific example of how the right might have influenced the uh, environmental policies of the nation? That was the way we deliver the Kyoto decision 
uh, was very much that. Um, a lot of the, the good programs that aren't talked about, uh, there are obviously pressures, and I wouldn't say it was necessarily from the right, but from utility industries in areas like new source review. But again, they're, unfortunately, one of the frustrations in the environmental area is that Science isn't exact, and it would be really nice if you could get a hard number out of the scientists so you wouldn't have all this back and forth, so you don't have the kinds of battles that you have now over is climate change a real thing caused by humans, or is it just part of a natural uh, progression of the earth that we have seen before with the Ice Age? Well, you know, common sense will tell you, sure, we had an Ice Age, the dinosaurs all were killed, and humans run around to impact that. But on the other hand, you'd have to be uh, deaf, dumb, and blind, I think, to think that what we have done in our treatment of the Earth and our emissions into the atmosphere, to think that those haven't had a, an impact and we aren't, and it didn't make it more difficult for, it may be hastening climate change and hasn't made it more difficult for nature to recover. President Bush ran in 2000. He wanted to, uh, you know, reduce uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. And you were very enthused about that. And soon enough, you found out that that wasn't going to be. Well, the big issue there was on the it, it centered around the Kyoto Protocol, and again, that's a, a perfect example to me of how we have hurt ourselves by having this sort of just razor-like focus, laser-like focus on the base because the Kyoto Protocol was never going to pass uh, when. Al Gore had taken it up to the Senate. It was voted down 95 to nothing. The Congress then had passed resolutions every year saying no part of the federal government shall spend any money implementing anything that looks like Kyoto. It, it wasn't going to pass. And the president come out against it. I was not for the protocol uh, as a governor because I didn't think it would solve the problem, particularly without India and China being part of the mix. And so when the president said we weren't going to support, be part of the Kyoto Treaty, or that's what the protocol is, essentially, is the treaty, um, that was just saying the emperor has no clothes. The problem was he did it in a way to appeal to the base that kind of said, we're out of this discussion entirely. And there was no differentiation made between the protocol, which is the treaty, and the process, which was something that the rest of the world, including the United States, had been engaged in for some 10 years with people who think climate change is a very serious issue. And the message was to the base, we're not going to get pushed around by a bunch of people from outside the country that really want to just hurt our economy and don't – on an issue that may not even be a real one. And yet this administration is spending more than any administration and more than the rest of the developed world combined on climate change research and technology development. It was $4.3 billion when I left EPA. It's, I think, over $5 billion now. We have uh, – multilateral and bilateral agreements with most of the rest of the developed world on technology development, coal bed methane, hydrogen fuel cell. And the president has called for a greenhouse gas intensity reduction of 18 percent over 10 years. He is engaged, but you wouldn't know it because we don't talk about it because that's not what the base likes. Well, you wouldn't know it because in 2002, when you were the administrator of the EPA, you came out with a report, you sent it to the United Nations, and it said that man-made greenhouse gases were, you know, going to increase by 43 percent over the next 20 years. The Bush administration, the president, dismissed the report. And there are a lot of people who still do. I mean, Michael Crichton has written a very, a very successful book just recently released that uh, purports to debunk the climate change issues. It's a, it's a very volatile issue, but the agency went forward and said what they thought, what the science was telling them. We spoke earlier today with um, Jim DePesso. I guess he's the policy director of, of Republicans for Environmental Protection. Do you know him? Um, I 
may have met him, but I don't know him. Well, he has an issue with your book and, and with mm-hmm. how you were there when the, you know, at the EPA. And, and he says you never seem to hold the president accountable. I want you to listen to this. I, I don't know why she soft pedals her criticism of the president. Maybe it's out of respect for his office. Uh, maybe it's because she's thinking about uh, her own future within the Republican Party. Uh, from our position, though, we feel that the policies of the administration are the responsibility of the president. Uh, you know, she says he has he has had a lot of bad advice. And that's true. He has had a lot of bad advice uh, from the vice president on down. But ultimately, the responsibility for making the decisions lands right there on the president's desk. Governor? I mean, the president is the head of his party. Oh, absolutely. No, the president is the head. And I disagree with many of the decisions that have been made. But I also know of the good decisions that have been made. So, you know, it's, it's easy to find criticism, and you do. And the president is ultimately responsible. And I will tell you that every time I went in and met with the president to talk about these issues, we were in the same place. The frustration I had was when I'd left, leave the room, you'd find others coming in and, and others who in the White House, not even going into the president, but others in the White House who kind of thought it was their responsibility to take over. And uh, you just get a lot of pushback. And I that happens in every administration. I haven't been part of another, so I can't speak to how this is different from another administration. But it is a huge frustration. Can you give me an example of that? Well, the, the wetlands is a perfect one. Um, I met with the president on several occasions where he said, I don't want to just say there's no net loss of wetlands, which had been the policy up to that point. I want to be able to say we've added to our wetlands. That, to me, was a presidential directive. There was no question, and yet I'd find myself arguing with the Army Corps of Engineers on it. I'd find there were people in the in the Council of Environmental Quality, which is an office located in the White House, saying, well, you know, we really ought to look at the reinterpretation of that. And I kept sitting there saying, but I had this conversation with the president. I think maybe there was a level of distrust about how I interpreted the president's words and a reluctance to actually go in and bother him about something like wetlands. But I never hesitated to bring up the issues. And he always said to me, if I had an issue and there was a problem with how it was being handled within the administration, to to just push through the the palace guard and get to him, talk to him. Governor, uh, we spoke with uh, Eric Schaefer, who was your chief of enforcement at the EPA, who resigned in protest while you were there. And... uh I want you to listen to something he said. When she was at EPA, I think it seriously damaged the Environmental Protection Agency. I think it had earned a reputation for for integrity and for independence and for basically being able to at least tell the White House what it thought should be done about environmental problems. And we're hearing now that Ms. Whitman, Governor Whitman, wasn't able to do that. And I think that presented her with a clear choice, and that choice was either to continue to serve the administration and give them political cover or to resign. And I think it would have made a big difference if she had stepped down. Governor Whitman? Well, uh, with all due respect to Eric Schaefer, uh, he didn't resign in protest. He'd had his job lined up for months before he left. I think he has an agenda. And, you know, he says there that I didn't protest or didn't show, take to the White House what the EPA's position was. I did. And I'm not going to tell anyone, Eric Schaefer, what those particular battles were necessarily, because the the ultimate decision rested with the president. But I never signed a regulation that I couldn't live with in good conscience and I, that I thought undermined the integrity of the agency. And when it came to a point where I thought there was a regulation coming down that I couldn't in good conscience sign, I did resign. I, I left. And I didn't leave under protest because that may give you the momentary feeling of, of excitement and you get all sorts of attention, but it doesn't change anything. Uh, 
Paul O'Neill's book came out, and, and it got a lot of attention for a brief flash. It didn't change the outcome of the election. didn't change anything. I am interested not in so much a critique of this administration, which is why I didn't even put the book out. I made sure the book didn't come out till after the election. I'm talking about the future. I use the illustration of what my experience is, both as governor and within the administration, to point out the concerns I have about the focus that we have now on the base and the ever-narrowing litmus test of what it makes takes to be a good Republican. And I'm talking about 2008 and the future, and that's where my focus is. So what's ahead for Republicans if they continue on the path of playing to the anti-regulation element of the base, as you say in the book? Well, it's the more than just the anti-regulation element in the, in the base. It's all of the issues that are part of that litmus test, and I believe the Republicans will not be a majority party come 2008. Seems to be working for them pretty well now. Yes, they have control, absolutely, and people say that to me all the time. But, you know, Paul Wyrick, who is a very conservative grassroots organizer, said to the leadership just two weeks ago that Republicans better be careful. They've been winning since 94, yes, but by very small pluralities, and the loss of any one part of their coalition could have serious repercussions and could mean that they would lose control. Well, you know what? That includes the moderates, because without the moderates, you wouldn't have control in the Senate and the House. Without the moderates, the president would not have won re election. Governor Whitman, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, good to talk to you. Christine Todd Whitman is the former administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Her new book is called It's My Party Too. Coming up, is it safe? Some Boston residents question whether a new high-tech biodefense lab in their neighborhood will make them more or less secure. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. This is a story about a minority community, national security, high-tech laboratories, and what scientists call select agents. Now, don't let the innocent-sounding name fool you. Select agents are the most dangerous organisms on Earth. Among them, Ebola anthrax, Lassa fever, and plague. In the wrong hands, these pathogens could wreak unspeakable havoc. Since 9-11, the Bush administration has increased funding for biodefense research more than 18-fold, from $400 million to more than $7.5 billion a year. Bioterrorism is a real threat to, to our country. It's a threat to every nation that loves freedom. Terrorist groups seek biological weapons. We know some rogue states already have them. Much of the government's funding has gone to build eight regional centers for biodefense research and six new proposed super-secure laboratories known as BSL, Biosafety Level 4, labs. One of them is slated for Boston. Dr. Mark Klempner, associate provost at Boston University Medical School, is head of the project to build a BSL-4 in the city's south end. It is designed in a way to absolutely maximize safety and decontaminatability. Probably the easiest way to think about this is that a BSL-4 laboratory is an airtight box within another box within the building. Or a bunker within a bunker. The proposed BSL-4 at Boston University would be state-of-the-art, with seven layers of security protecting the building alone. The lab would be equipped with airlocks, chemical showers, filters, fumigation devices, and intense heat sterilizers, all designed to protect workers from the deadly pathogens inside. 
Because of all the security, BSL-4 labs don't come cheap. Dr. Klempner says the price tag for Boston universities is $170 million. About two-thirds of that is federal money. There was a very vigorous competition to try and win this project. And uh, we feel very fortunate to have come out on top of that competition. I mean, we, we think that the Why Boston response has been a very, very convincing argument to the scientific community. The scientific community, perhaps, but not residents of the nearby community of Roxbury, Massachusetts. We was like, what? Why here? We have all these people around. Alma Feliciano is a member of SafetyNet. It's a Roxbury community organization fighting to keep the high-security lab out of their backyard. One day we just got a call. We just got together, we hurry up, got dressed, and we're gone. And when we got there, all we saw was, like, people in suits looking good. And we was like, oh, my God, are we allowed to come to this meeting? And we all looked at each other. But we sat right in the back, and they started naming, like, Ebola, Aintrack. And we was all looking at each other. What is that? What is that? And... We started asking questions. What do that mean? What is this? What are y'all building? Why are y'all burning to our neighborhood? So he says, get somebody smarter than you all. And we got hurt. Our feeling got hurt. We went downstairs. We hold hands together, the whole group. And we said, we're going to tell everybody and their mama in the whole Boston area about what's going on. And they did. The community mobilized, and SafetyNet is now suing Boston University and the city's zoning board, which recently approved the high-security biolab. SafetyNet charges the final environmental impact statement for the lab doesn't consider alternative sites as required by law. In fact, in analyzing potential risks to the region, the report doesn't even mention Roxbury. Um, This area, this used to be Roxbury. Now they call it the South End. I recently toured the proposed site for the lab with Tomas Aguilar. He works with the Roxbury group called ACE, Alternatives for Community and Environment. ACE opposes Boston University's biodefense lab. Um, across the, the big street, like over here is the jail. Coming up here, see all this construction? This is part of the BioSquare, the, the Boston University BioSquare. BioSquare is where Boston University wants to build a quarter of a million square foot high security lab. It's a gentrified area with renovated Victorian row houses and modern brick research buildings. Nearby is Boston's largest homeless shelter and the city's wholesale flower market. Across an open field is Roxbury. This whole area, you can take it right here if you can. This whole area is becoming high priced. But mixed in this area are housing, public housing complexes. Roxbury has more than its share of pollution and environmental problems. Eight of Boston's nine trash transfer stations are here, and there are abandoned lots loaded with asbestos and lead. The asthma rate in Roxbury is five times the state average, the worst in Massachusetts. The state has designated Roxbury an environmental justice community. It's a special status to help Roxbury recover environmentally. And up here, where the bus is turning, this is a dead end. That's a parking lot right now, but that's going to be part of this big complex for the bio, what we call the bioterror lab. Now you call it bioterror, they call yes. it a biodefense lab. Yeah, they call it biosafety, biocontainment lab. And that's all fine, but it has nothing to do with the reality that this is a defense department project. In fact, it's not a defense department project. Boston University's BSL-4 lab, like most of the nation's biodefense projects, is funded through one of the National Institutes of Health. Again, Dr. Klempner of Boston University. 
We have nothing to hide in this laboratory. The work will not be classified research. Um, and, uh, and, and our intention is to be responsive to the community in that way. The question that these people in the neighborhood are asking, why here? I would say that these laboratories have been safe wherever they've been put, whether they've been put in a remote location uh, or they have been in a downtown location. That has been their history. And most importantly, one needs to assemble the people, the scientists, who can do the work in this kind of an institute. And I can't think of a better place. And nearby residents will benefit, says Dr. Klempner. Building the BSL-4 lab will employ 1,300 construction workers and create hundreds of new jobs. But Roxbury activist Tomas Aguilar isn't buying it. Break it down a bit. The bottom line, you need people to clean those cages, to take care of those animals that they're testing, you know, with Ebola and all that. They need people to mop the floors and they empty, right? Think about it. Residents in Davis, California, thought about it and recently defeated a bid by the University of California to build a government-funded BSL-4 lab in their community. One of their arguments, a high-security lab doesn't belong in an urban area. Another proposed site for a Level 4 lab that's met with community opposition is Hamilton, Montana, population 4,000. Tomas Aguilar says in Roxbury, there are 17,000 people per square mile. The proposed super-secure biodefense lab would be built right under the flight path of nearby Boston Logan Airport. Aguilar worries that putting the laboratory here makes the place a target for terrorists. Boston University's environmental impact statement says little about terrorism, but another report for a similar lab in Maryland says there's nothing to worry about. I was reading the environmental impact statement. Did they calculate that that, uh, one plane crash into this building every... 38,000 years. Yeah, well, um, the thing with statistics, look at, I wonder what the statistics were that both the Twin Towers were going to be taken out. Who would have thought the odds? They were probably astronomical. Accidents happened. Not only did all these things happen, while the public was debating this whole issue of, you know, transparency, not only did all this happen, but then they hide it. Last summer and fall, accidents did happen three Boston University medical researchers working with tularemia in a BSL-2 lab contracted the disease. They thought they were working with a safe strain of the bacterium. Turns out they weren't. The university researchers survived and state and city health officials were notified, but the public wasn't told, nor were the officials who were reviewing Boston University's final environmental impact report. Unaware of the accidental infections, they approved BU's application for the lab. Again, Dr. Mark Klempner. The risks in the biosafety level four labs are to the workers in those laboratories. We acknowledge it. We will do everything we can to minimize it. But the history says that the risks to the community and to the environment have been and theoretically are negligible. The worst biolab accident happened in 1979 in Sverdlost. 64 residents of the Soviet city died after researchers working with anthrax in aerosol accidentally released spores into the air. Dr. Matthew Messelson co-directs a Harvard University program on chemical and biological weapons. He investigated the Soviet disaster for the CIA. Now, there's some things that should not be done in the city. They shouldn't do anything with aerosols because aerosols travel. That's what the Soviets did with their anthrax epidemic. They had this in the city. (laughs) That's what they did. 
And that is precisely what BU plans to do. We will definitely have an aerobiology unit in the laboratories. It's one, it'll be one of the core facilities. Biolab chief Dr. Mark Klempner says the public will never be at risk from aerosols tested in the lab. That is a very important part of the research because many infectious diseases, especially those that can create the greatest epidemics, um, are aerosol transmitted. Uh, and so I think it is smart to understand exactly how these infectious agents get deposited in the lungs. So I think that there's a lot to be uh, done and learned in the, in the name of the public's health uh, through an aerobiology program. I, actually, I was a proponent of this laboratory initially. Dr. David Ozinoff, a professor of public health at Boston University, supported the BSL-4 lab on campus, but now he's one of its strongest critics. A laboratory that's got an aerosol facility that has animal facilities uh, has all the earmarks of an offensive biological weapons facility. Um, what's really happened is that funds f- for local public health and state public health are being cut. Bread and butter public health maternal and child health, substance abuse, immunization programs. At the same time, money is flowing in to do biodefense work. And we have a massive shifting of priorities, and that's what's going on in public health in this country. Boston University had hoped to break ground on its high-security lab this spring, but late last month, amid growing community protests, the NIH announced it would issue a new environmental impact report delaying the project. Meanwhile, renovations are already underway at the world's largest BSL-4 lab at Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland. Living on Earth's Jeff Young recently toured the high-security lab at USAMRID. It's the U.S. Army's Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, and he has our report. The cinder block walls and tile floors of USAMRID look so ordinary you could mistake it for any hospital or school hall. Until, that is, you get to a thick glass window looking in on a woman in a baby blue moon suit. This is a level four suite. Um, This is the lab where a lot of work with Ebola is conducted. Fort Detrick press officer Karee Vander Linden points to the scientist at work on Ebola, one of the most dangerous known viruses. There's a lot of noise as one of the labs is under renovation, but the soundtrack of the biolabs is the comforting white noise of pressurized air. You hear that the whole time you're working in there. Biosafety suite supervisor Diane Nagley has worked here 22 years, much of it in the moon suits and carefully controlled air of the BSL-4. Nagley points out features of the suit as we watch her colleague at work. We have air going into the suit, so it's always being forced out so that we're protected too. That's the, the yellow hose that I see yes, connected to her, uh, goes down to her waist there. That's yeah, and pumping then, air. And you go through a HEPA filter before it goes into the suit. HEPA is high efficiency particle air filter. Air passes through the labs just once and then is filtered before it's released. Any clothing or waste leaving the suite spends hours in an autoclave, a high pressure, high temperature sterilizer. Equipment goes through an airlock filled with formaldehyde gas. The only thing that should get out alive is the scientist in the suit. When she leaves working in there, she'll get in a chemical shower and you scrub down. Um, The showers usually last somewhere around five minutes. It's a water, a mist of disinfectant, and you scrub and you rinse off again. Then you can actually step out of the suit. And then what of the the water that's used to, to wash these things down? We're always using disinfectant on the inside too. So things, we don't just 
poor live virus down a sink. We've killed it first. It goes through a laboratory sewer system that also goes through a sterilization plant before it's released. Nagley jokes and sips on a soda as we look into the room holding a virus that could bring a horrible disease with no vaccination, no treatment, and high mortality. If she seems nonchalant about all this, it's because of her high level of confidence in the equipment and people she works with. The chance of anything getting out is extremely small. I mean, it's our lives too, so we want to make sure that there are no escapes because, you know, we're going to be the first ones and we don't want to be connected with that. But some wonder if Fort Dietrich is sometimes the cause of a problem instead of a cure. In the wake of the still unsolved anthrax attacks of 2001, the FBI investigation focused on a former USAMRID employee. Press officer Vander Linden has no comment on that. In the early 90s, a USAMRID inventory could not account for some stocks of anthrax and other specimens. Vander Linden insists the material was inert and was later accounted for. She says the only exposures have been to workers, usually when a needle or animal bite goes through a glove. When that happens, the worker goes here, to a medical room with the same containment technology and thick doors as a level 4 lab. It's called the slammer. There have been about 16 cases where we had a close enough call that someone had to be isolated here for observation purposes. Unfortunately, none of those people became ill as a result of that incident. The most recent was last year. We had a person who had a needle stick with a weakened form of Ebola virus, and she spent 21 days in here. It's an ominous reminder of the risk workers face. And Vander Linden says what drives that work is a need to be prepared for another threat, almost too terrible to contemplate, such germs being used as weapons. We have a dedicated workforce. They're highly trained. They want to do things safely. So I think it's, uh, it's research that we can't do without. That research will expand here soon as USAMRID joins with the Department of Homeland Security for a new biodefense center at Fort Detrick, scheduled to open in 2008. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Frederick, Maryland. ahead, win some, lose some. The discovery and disappearance of new species on the bio-rich island of Madagascar. But first, this environmental health note from Jennifer Chu. Mom always told you to brush your teeth, but she probably didn't know that it just might save your life. According to the Columbia University Medical Center, brushing up daily could decrease your risk of heart attack and stroke. 657 patients opened wide as scientists measured the levels of different kinds of bacteria in their mouths. They also measured the thickness of their patients' carotid arteries, because the thicker the arteries, the higher the risk for heart disease. Scientists discovered that patients with thick carotid arteries also had high levels of the bacteria that causes gum disease, a condition characterized by bleeding and sensitive gums. Although there's a concrete connection between the two, it's unclear which comes first, thick arteries or gum disease. 
One explanation could be that as the bacteria moves through the body's bloodstream, it causes inflammation that clogs arteries and ultimately leads to a heart attack. The next step for researchers is to conduct a long-term study in which patients' gum disease and heart health will be monitored, and the connection between the two will be clarified. But before altering your schedule to brush 10 times a day, be warned, only the specific bacteria associated with gum disease has any connection with cardiac health. Scientists say there are benefits to other bacteria which could help keep your teeth clean of tiny pests. That's this week's Health Note. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Argosy Foundation Contemporary Music Fund, supporting the creation, performance, and recording of new music. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. And coming up, over the river and through the woods of Wisconsin, the dogs know the way, mush you huskies. But first... Time for your comments. We received some emotional responses to our recent story about how the people of Newfoundland have dealt with the demise of their economic foundation, the Northern Cod. In its heyday, the industry employed more than 30,000 people, but then the Cod were fished to near extinction and the island lost part of its heritage. Mary Zukas, who hears us on KIOS in Omaha, Nebraska, writes, I listened with tears in my eyes. I was driving home from work thinking about how the world is moving in fast forward and so much history is being lost. Rebecca Bell, who listens to us on KUOW in Seattle, expressed a similar sentiment. Her mother and aunts used to vacation on the island. Because I grew up hearing about these magical vacations, she writes, I visited there one summer. The best meal I ever had was at a small, crowded, noisy restaurant, and it was cod in a creamy sauce. I was sad to hear about the loss of the fishing culture. What can we learn from it? Our story about the greening of the Super Bowl drew a number of responses. The NFL planted a forest to neutralize carbon dioxide released from the big event. But Peter Wang, who listens to Living on Earth on KQED in San Francisco, laments the fact that the NFL didn't promote the project. He writes, Finding no trace of carbon neutral on the SuperBowl.com website suggests that the publicity associated with the Super Bowl wasn't fully taken advantage of. It would really make a lot of Americans sit up and take notice if they knew the NFL was supporting the fight against global warming. Lee Tobin hears Living on Earth on WUNC in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and she appreciated our story on the reactionary pedestrian, Abner Surd, who walked thousands of miles across the United States, a journey that left him disgusted with the automobile. As a bicycle commuter for the past 20 years, Tobin writes, I can very much relate to his sentiment. I've grown to despise the automobile and all of the costly side effects its overuse and dependency have brought to American culture. We'd like to hear from you. Your comments are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write us at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. 
Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. And you can hear our program anytime on our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Environmental reporter Dan Grossman recently returned from his second trip to Madagascar. Located about 400 miles off Africa's southeast coast, Madagascar is the fourth largest island in the world and considered one of the ecologically richest countries. In fact, most of the creatures there you won't find anywhere else on the planet, including 99% of the world's frogs and toads and all of the world's lemurs. But Madagascar is one of the poorest nations in the world, which is part of the reason why less than 15% of its original forest cover remains. Slash-and-burn agricultural practices, use of firewood, and other human activities have devastated the island's forests. Dan Grossman joins me. Welcome back, Dan. Why Madagascar? And not once, but twice? I went on uh, several expeditions. One of them was uh, quite amazing. Uh, I, the, this particular trip was organized by a biologist named Steve Goodman, who's a mammal expert. And I'd like to play you a little part of a recording I made where he described to me some of the conditions that he's encountered on some of these expeditions. We would come to what formerly was just a small creek, and there was this raging torrent where you couldn't imagine how you would ever get across it. And we would find someone with a canoe, and uh, we'd attach a rope to the other side of the river. Either someone would swim across to attach a rope, and, you know, person by person, different portions of equipment going across, get to the other side, then walk to the next village, find another oxen cart, load the oxen cart, go to the next river. And so it's this long sequence and all of this, you know, it was still pouring rain. Uh, it was difficult to make a fire to eat. Boy, that sounds really rough. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is, is that the best time to see the wildlife is the rainy season. That's the worst time to get around. Now, uh, I'd like to play you uh, a little piece of a recording I did with Patricia Wright, who's a, a pretty famous lemur expert. And while I was there, she actually discovered a new species of lemur. She's not, it hasn't been scientifically verified yet, but she believes it's a new species. And she describes what it was like looking for that uh, new species. We had been tipped off by one of our Malagasy graduate students, uh, Felix, who told us that he thought that there were two kinds of fat-tailed dwarf lemurs in this forest, and I'd never seen one in, uh, in the areas that I'd been. So we took a darting team, a capture team, and we, um, we, we captured it. We um, took some samples and weighed it, measured it, and then released it the next morning. I sat there with my, this little animal in my hand thinking, my God, you know, it had been since 1986 that I'd really discovered a new species, and here it was happening again. Of course, the graduate student really is the one that discovered it. And then I suddenly realized there were 13 species of primates in this park. So it was just, it was just a thrilling moment at 2.18 in the morning. <laughs> it was amazing. This tape that we're listening to now, that's those are the lemurs? Yes. Uh, there are uh, lemurs don't exist anywhere else in the world. Madagascar has the is the only place where lemurs exist in the wild. And uh, what you're listening to is a the scientific term is a varicia. It's also called a black and white ruffed lemur. Uh, they 
this barking sound is just amazing. And where I went, to, I went on one of these expeditions doing a survey of wildlife, and it was in a steep little valley, and these sounds were just echoing through the valley. What a racket. Yeah, yeah. It was it was amazing to hear those sounds. It was just amazing. Now, Steve Goodman told me a very interesting story about one time when he discovered a new micro-mammal. A micro-mammal is, uh, you know, a small mammal, like a little mouse-like or shrew-like thing. We were up at the summit of a mountain uh, in northern Madagascar, a mountain called Anjanahara Bay. And the summit is kind of this mystical place. Everything is covered with dripping moss and epiphytes. And it was on the second or third morning after I had put out my traps. I remember the, the trap was on a, a branch that was covered with very, very thick moss. And I p- picked up the trap, and it was clearly a very, very small animal. And I thought, well, it's probably just a young of one of the, the larger rodents that occur in the forest. And, you know, I, it sounds a bit silly, but I know the smell of these animals. And I smelled the trap, and it had a very strange smell. And I, I knew that it was something that I hadn't encountered before. Kind of opened the trap a little bit to see what was inside, but I didn't want the thing to to jump out. So I kind of put the closed trap in my trap bag, and with you know incredible anticipation, went back to the camp and pulled it out uh, of the trap. And it was—I had no idea what it was, absolutely no idea. In fact, it turned out to be not only a new species to science, but a new genus to science. Dan, you know, I remember looking at a National Geographic a few years ago, and it had a couple of decades of, of satellite images of Madagascar, and you could see the forest are shrinking. It's as if it was a lake that had just dried up. Steve Goodman told me a really sad story about a colleague of his who discovered some new animals in a block of forest that he was visiting. And he asked Steve Goodman if when he was in that area, if he could take some pictures of it to go with a scientific paper that the scientist was publishing. And so he went down there, and when he got there, the forest had been cut. So by the time the uh, article was published, the species that this researcher had discovered was extinct. So it was supposed to be a, a paper about a new species that had been discovered. Instead, it, uh, it really was an article about a species that had just become extinct. Are you going back to Madagascar? As a matter of fact, I do intend to go back. I am working on a bunch of uh, short radio pieces about the wildlife of Madagascar that I'm going to translate into Malagasy, which is the, the national language along with French. And I'm hoping to go with a radio producer there around the country to play these pieces to kids in the towns that surround some of these forest areas because what people have told me is the people there don't really understand just how special the wildlife is. I mean, a lemur to them is like a gray squirrel to us. They don't realize that it only exists in Madagascar. So the idea is that if they knew more about how special the wildlife there was, that maybe they'd be a little bit more protective of it. How do you say thank you in Malagasy? Well, there are a lot of words in Malagasy where there's the you know, words kind of long and then they have various short versions. Uh, so you say misutra or sutra or sut, uh, depending on how fast you're trying to get away. Then, sut. <laughs> Environmental reporter Dan Grossman. Winter driving, driving you crazy? For a change of pace, try guiding a team of dogs through two feet of snow. 
Producer Ed Janis traveled to the Bayfield Peninsula of northern Wisconsin to learn the fine art of mushing. He recorded Wolfsong Adventure owners John and Mary Thiel as they showed him and other first-time mushers how to ride on the back of a sled at 12 miles an hour with eight dogs pulling as one. Hey, Java. Starbuck. They love what they do. They just love it. People like to do hands-on stuff. I mean, that's, that's the big thing. What they really want to do is handle the dogs. I mean, that's the best part of it. So we have them do everything. They harness the dogs and hook them up and drive a team. And when we're done, they can uh, come back and feed them, and that's people's favorite part. Hi, guys. Kennels often name litters by category so you can keep track of who the brothers and sisters are. And my family's very Norwegian, so this is Lapsa. There's a Ludafisk. This is Krumkaka, which is a Christmas cookie. We have a Blues litter, BB King, Buddy Guy, Luther Allison. This big fellow is Gonzo. And he's just awesome. He pulls so hard. Good boy, Gonz. You can see in the dogs now, they're starting to get fired up a little bit. You're really working with that enthusiasm, trying to keep them feel happy all the time. I'm getting the harnesses ready. We'll lay them out. Hey, JD. Go for a little run. You want to go for a little run? Some of these older guys will just about dress themselves, though. Lift their paw for you. There you go. Slip it right over his head. You sort of pull it back. And... I'm going to do a little sled instruction with you before we hook anybody up. The skis are called runners. You'll stand there most of the time. The sled will track behind the dogs quite well, and you don't have to do a whole lot of steering. You've got a couple different brake systems here, which you will use a good deal of the time out on the trail. Let's go ahead and hook up my team first. Ready to go, guns? Let's go, girls. Let's go, girls. Good dogs. This is the best part. All that excitement and noise and chaos hooking up, and you pull the hook, and it's just instant silence. Good dogs. On by, on by. I don't know if you saw it up there, but Lucy, the, the little one, she was trying to go right, which would have been G, and uh, Luti, the old experienced leader, said, no, no, <laughs> we're not going that way. We're going about 10 miles, 12, gee, 12 miles an hour. Ha, ha, ha. Good boy, Luti, good boy. Come on, guys, come on, come on. About this time in the run, the dogs usually get into a bit of a rhythm, and you can just sort of just go through the woods like this, look around a little bit, snow hanging up in the trees, and we're just kind of slipping through the woods now. You look out over your team and you see them when they really get in the groove. The dogs will move like 
a wave, you know, like one animal. It's just a beautiful thing to see them running and doing what they love to do, and they're happy and excited, and you can't help but be the same. I'm going to run up this hill here. The only way to stay warm in the winter when it's really cold out is to, is to run. Let's take 10 steps, jump back on, rest a little bit. I help them up the hills a bit. Straight ahead. Straight ahead. Try to, try to kick your sled forward as we turn here. Just give a couple of good hard kicks. It'll help you around this corner. Ha! Good dogs. Hold on here. All right. Just hop back on. There you go. Well, I think they're fired up. Now they know they're going home, so they're going to, they might want to run a little extra fast. Up, up. Let's go. Let's go. John and Mary Thiel run Wolf Song Adventures in Bayfield, Wisconsin. Our sound portrait was produced by Ed Janis. That was a great ride, kids. Living on Earth brings you stories about the environment. Now, it's your turn. We want you to send us your stories. Just visit livingonearth.org for complete details. We'll tell you how to make a recording, which could be as simple as sitting down with a friend and talking into a tape recorder, or picking up the phone, like this listener did, to tell us about her up-close and personal encounter with a deer in the woods. Once the deer came to me, I won something, or I had him. second, I had that feeling of ownership. He looked me right in the eye, and that's when he bolted away. Oh, dear. What's your story? We'll choose some of your recordings and post them on our website. We might even put it on the air. This is not a contest. There are no winners. There are no losers. It's simply a call for self-expression. Visit livingonearth.org for directions, sample submissions, and a chance to tell your story. We leave you this week baying at the moon. On a hot summer's night, Jonathan Storm recorded this pack of wolves reclaiming its home in Smoky Mountains National Park. Living on Earth is a production of the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Steve Gregory, and Susan Shepard, with help from Carl Lindemann and Jenny Cecil Moore. Our interns are the Katies, Katie Oliveri and Katie Zemseff. Our technical director is Paul Wabrek. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Steve Kerwood returns next week. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and cultured soy. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.